In the last 10 years or so, many companies became extravagant in the way they set up their headquarters and workplace amenities for employees. At companies like Pixar or Lucasfilm, it's not unusual to see enormous open floor plans surrounded by lavish landscaping with toys in every corner and employees zipping around on Razor scooters. But it's not just entertainment studios that got in on this trend. Other firms started to provide what are sometimes referred to as amusement perks. I like that. Things like gourmet meals, subsidized massage, full-service dessert trucks, hammocks, all on site. Sometimes even animals get brought in. BuzzFeed once bought a pony who would come and visit workers as they work. They thought that was great. And then it was topped when the pony came back with a piglet and a bandana-wearing goat to keep company the workers. We're thinking about getting like a California desert tortoise here to roam the aisles as we do church. There are a lot of different examples if you search this phenomenon, but a biotechnology company called Genentech caught my eye. Here are a few of their current amenities for office workers according to their website. Full-service cafeterias, on-site childcare, free counseling, financial and legal advice, concierge and travel arrangements, sponsored employee sports teams, on-site car wash, bicycle repair and haircuts, full-service on-site dental care, and fertility support. And that's not even all of them. I gave up after that, listing all of them. Now, I'm not sure how much these perks are going to matter much in the future. In March, CNET reported that in the wake of the pandemic, 80% of workers polled don't want to go back to the office full-time. I don't know if that includes any of you guys, but hey, sometimes it's nice to work at home, right? But companies build workspaces like this, hoping it will encourage creativity and collaboration and productivity among the workers. WeWork co-founder Miguel McKelvey told The Observer, I definitely think that there is something that makes you feel more excited to come here in the morning and stay late at night. Now, in our last study, we saw how God created our cosmos with all of its elements and energies and forces, and his purpose was to design a space where human beings would be able to live and work and enjoy all that he desired to give them. Humans are not just another inhabitant of the earth. We are unique creatures. We are objects of God's special affection, attention, and intention. Humans are not mere animals. We're not just the top of the food chain. We are specially crafted by God to be in communion with him and in cooperation with him. And because of that, all of the galaxies around us all of the gravitational forces and the elements and the power of nature, all of that is simply the backdrop behind and the stage upon which our lives play out before the Lord. Now, tonight we're gonna see God get down to business, preparing the place where he could be in partnership with those creatures that he had such a special plan for. So let's see what God set up for us beginning in verse three. And God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning, one day. So the first decision we should make tonight is what is meant by the term day. We're going to see it many times repeated in these verses. 
We saw last time how there is hot and historic debate over the creation account, over all of Genesis 1 through 11 in particular, but uh, especially in the opening of the book, lots of disagreement. We couldn't even get to the second verse of the Bible without there being a significant theological disagreement over whether there was a great gap of time hidden there between the verses. And as we talked about last time, and I'll probably bring up a whole bunch of times as we move through the first 11 chapters in particular, even though these passages can be controversial even among Christians, doesn't mean they need to be divisive, okay? So we're going to just have to agree to disagree on certain uh, particular stances when it comes to some of the interpretation. And by that, I mean, if you ascribe to a, a somewhat different perspective on the interpretation of the Genesis creation week, that's okay. Uh, this is a non-essential issue. Now, in this section, there are those who feel that day does not mean a, what we would call a 24-hour solar day, but rather that it is referring to a long millions of years period of time and that's called the day-age theory. You'll, you'll run into that from time to time. And why does that theory exist? Proponents, and you know, I'm, not, I'm talking about you know, faithful believers who love Jesus and study the scriptures deeply. Some proponents of this theory feel that it helps to reconcile what some secular scientists describe as millions of years being observed in the fossil record or in geological record. That's where the idea comes from. Now, again, let me say this. If you ascribe to the gap theory or the day-age theory or one of the other perspectives that has a hard time accepting the creation week as being several, seven literal 24-hour days, that is fine. No one's gonna excommunicate you. No one's gonna make you wear a scarlet DA around your neck for day-age or anything like that. It's, an, it's a non-essential issue, and we recognize that as we move through this portion of scripture, there are very hard questions that need to be thought about when it comes to also studying the world around us and how to make sense of what we observe while also putting our faith absolutely in what God has revealed to be true in scripture, okay? So we're not trying to make light of that or, or be glib about it or anything like that. With that said, our pulpit perspective here at Calvary Hanford is that the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 is a true literal historical record of seven 24-hour days in which God created everything according to its kind. So that's our perspective. If you, you know, wanna talk more about that or have questions about that or have a disagreements with, about that, Jacob Kelso is here and you can talk to him about that <laughs> and he'll, he'll help you out with all of that. But there are a bunch of reasons why we look at this text and when we see the word day, we see it as a day, a 24-hour day in the sense that we talked about how was your day today, right? And let me give you four reasons why. First, while it is true that the Hebrew word used for day here can mean an indefinite period of time, and sometimes in the Old Testament it does, the day of the Lord, for example. Uh, it can mean an indefinite period of time. It is never ever used that way when a number is attached to it like we see here. That's the case throughout this chapter. One day, the second day, the third day, the sixth day, and nowhere else in the Old Testament is that Hebrew word for day used in an indefinite or unspecific amount of time if a number is attached to it. 
Second, as Moses records this process for us as the author, he references a bunch of different lengths of time, even in the verses we're gonna look at tonight. He references 12-hour periods. He references days. He references seasons. He references years. You have to go out of your way while interpreting to assume that he isn't using the regular natural sense of these words. And if he's speaking naturally about years and seasons, which we all agree about, in a minute he's gonna refer to years. And everybody agrees, yeah, he means a year. Well, if he's speaking naturally about years and seasons that are observable and trackable by human beings, then we have little footing to think that he means something wildly different when he uses the term day in the same passage. Third, in Exodus 31, Moses is laying out the law of the Sabbath, a law uh, which, if you violated, carried the death penalty. It was a capital offense to violate the Sabbath. It was an absolute bedrock of their society, the, the program of working six days and resting for one day. If you worked on the Sabbath, you would die. And it wasn't just a theoretical thing that happened. Remember there, we, we read during the wilderness period, there's a guy out there gathering sticks and he's working on the Sabbath. And they say, what should we do? And Moses says, yeah, there's only one thing we can do. We have to kill this guy. So very deadly, serious law and prescription. And when Moses is laying out that law for the people in Exodus 31, here's what he says. Work may be done for six days, but on the seventh day, there must be a Sabbath of rest. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, but on the seventh day, he rested. And so it makes very little sense and it, it, to, to suggest that he meant a 24-hour period on the seventh day in the first half of the prescription, but meant an indefinite millions of years length of time in the second half of the very same sentence. Fourth reason, ascribing millions of years or what is sometimes referred to also as theistic evolution. There, there are some theologians who feel that Okay, what happened was God created the elements necessary for life, and then he set off the, uh, what we refer to in our culture as evolution. He, got, he kick-started evolution and then let evolution go. It's called theistic evolution. And if you read through Genesis, you'll encounter this as a perspective. Ascribing millions of years or theistic evolution to the creation of the cosmos not only doesn't match what's written in the text at all, it also doesn't solve apparent difficulties in geological record or the fossil record. It doesn't line up. It doesn't fix anything to say, oh, well, we just mean millions of years, and if you match up the, the, the sequence of the creation week in a millions of years format, that solves every apparent problem that we come across in the fossil record. And so it doesn't solve any kind of problem because the sequences don't harmonize. And these perspectives require death before the fall of man. We talked at length about that last time. That's a problem because the Bible tells us that death came as a result of Adam's sin, that there was no death before sin, that Adam ushered that into creation. And so you have a problem if there is death before the fall of man. And here's another thing that was pointed out by one resource that I thought was very helpful, at least for myself. Adam was created on the sixth day, right? And he lived through the seventh day then, logic dictates. And we're told later in the book that he dies at the age of 930. Not 930 million, not 9 million, not a billion, not anything like that. Obviously, the chronology of Adam himself 
doesn't allow for millions of years of period. And so uh, it doesn't mean that every problem is solved or that this is all very easy. But again, like we talked about last time, God's whole purpose in giving us Genesis and the other 65 books of the Bible is for what reason? To communicate to us, to express to us who he is and what he's done and what his plan is and how he operates and what his heart is about. And he does so very clearly. And because of that, as students and readers of the Bible, we approach it with what we call the literal historical interpretation. That unless we're given a real reason to think that we're being told an analogy, being told a figure, being told a vision or something like that, unless we're being told specifically, I saw a vision or something that is clearly a, a, a literary analogy, if we're just reading a passage like this, our perspective is we want to read it as plainly and literally and historically as possible. Now, instead here, what we are gonna find is that the text belabors the idea of 24-hour days. It's very repetitive. Now, of course, we realize that God could have created everything top to bottom in what we call an instant of time. Why didn't he? Why did he take uh, six whole days to make everything around us? Now, to us, it seems like a big deal. I learned recently that they think it took them 1,600 years to build Stonehenge, to put rocks on top of each other. They're just like, man, you're gonna have to take over. We're gonna be like 1,000 years before we're done with this, right? On the other hand, we also you know, talk about how they're doing these crazy building projects in China where they'll build like a, you know, a mega skyscraper in like 10 days and they're like, 10 days ago it was a dirt patch and now we're here and people are working in there, right? So we understand the idea that some work projects take a really long amount of time and some don't take very much time. And we're talking about a, a God of limitless power, of limitless intelligence, a God who can do whatever he wants to do immediately. So why did he take six whole days to do it? Well, for one thing, he was establishing a pattern that would be the basis for human activity. Like we saw, it was codified in the book of Exodus. Humans were meant to work the way God worked, and so he showed them how, at least the nation of Israel. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to imitate what I did in creation, and you're gonna work six days and you're gonna rest one day. It also reminds us that God is a God of timing. He doesn't work at random. He doesn't work on whims. He's not just flying by the seat of his celestial pants or anything like that. He is a God of very, very meticulous timing. His ways and, and his opinions are not always ones that we understand. Oftentimes we think God needs to hurry up and get, get going to me getting out of this trial or you know, us getting into blessing or those sorts of things. But God has his ways and his opinions and his perfect wisdom. And he operates according to his schedule, not ours. And we don't always understand it, but we can always trust it. He called the light good. This and many other passages indicate that darkness is not good, certainly not in comparison to light. God separates them. Uh, and in multiple places in this passage, we see him making that distinction, making that separation between light and dark. And that's another theme in this whole section is God making a distinction between things, separating things, dividing things out and showing, hey, here's the one and here is the other. So if the light is good and therefore the dark is not so good, why not simply eliminate the dark? Why not just have it light all the time? That seems kind of silly because we're used to a day-night you know, schedule, but what, what's gonna happen 
in the future, in the kingdom and in heaven. There is no night there because the Lord is our light. There's no sun there because it is light all the time because of the glory of the Lord. So one day God is going to do away with all the dark. So here at the beginning, when he's making a perfect world for humanity, why does he include half the time being in darkness? Of course, he knew that in this world we would need physical rest and night is the natural time to get it. But we'll also see that God is continually setting up choices for people, right? And, and in the New Testament, it's kind of put this way at one point, it says, will we walk in the light or will we walk in the dark? And we remember that Jesus is the light of the world. Anyone who follows him will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so what we're seeing here is God constructing a world where there is separation, where there is difference, not among people, but, but in the way that things are happening. And ultimately, he's going to give them that one major choice. Will you eat this fruit or will you not eat this fruit? But he's setting up this system by which he says, hey, like I am making value judgments about things. God says, I say the light is good. Do you agree with that? I say you shouldn't eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you agree with that? He's setting up a system where people can have a free choice to express their love and obedience and devotion to God or to not do that. Verse six says this, then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse sky, evening came, and then morning the second day. Scientists like Dr. Henry Morris believe that the pre-flood world was surrounded with a vapor canopy, not only because of this account, but also lots of other references in books like Job and and some of the other um, books of the Old Testament. But it seems that this world, the pre-flood world, was surrounded by a shell of vapor, Uh, We're told that there was no rain in those days, and yet there was much vegetation. This vapor canopy would have made a remarkable ecosystem. Earth would have been one enormous greenhouse shielded from any sort of harmful uh, space radiation. There would be no wind storms on the earth, no barren deserts, probably no ice caps. Some even read Psalm 148 and suggest that this vapor canopy will be restored in the millennial kingdom. And that's kind of an interesting thing to think about. After all, the millennium is the restoration of creation and bringing things back to the way that they were before the fall of man. But here we're told after God's creative work, evening came. And that's what's interesting. We're not even arguing about 24-hour days necessarily. Actually, it means these acts during the creation week did not take 24 hours. He did it all in 12 hours each day and then took the night off. Verse nine, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So clearly at this starting point, there was enough water to cover the entire earth. That's helpful to recognize given what we're told, a global flood, which we're gonna encounter in a few chapters, is not an unreasonable thing. The whole world, the surface of the earth was covered completely by water at this point. 
But here we see this refining process where the Lord is, is, is narrowing down and sort of refining down for a specific purpose. He's getting space ready for humanity. And we've got a universe and a stellar heavens and now a planet and that's being formed with an atmosphere. And now the Lord brings the land out of the sea where his people would be able to live and work. And so we see him sort of honing in on what would become our home and our workplace. Verse 11, then God said, let, all, uh, let the earth produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning, the third day. Here we have a new phrase that's gonna be repeated a number of times, according to their kinds. This simple statement repudiates man's theory of evolution. As biblical creationists, we have no issue with observable adaptation or what we might call microevolution, changes within a species, changes within the same kind. That happens, that's observable. We can track it and everything. But there is no scriptural or historically observable basis for macroevolution a fish becoming a mammal, a mammal becoming a bird, a monkey becoming a human. That simply is not historically observable, nor does it match with what we are told in God's perfect revelation. Rather, what we see here, a multiplicity of kinds were created simultaneously. Interestingly, we note that God does not name the plants. He named the sky, he named the earth, he's, he's doing some of this other stuff, but we get here to all of these different plants and vegetation and he does not name them. He's not gonna name the animals either. It seems kind of strange, right? If you write a song, you name it. If you are an architect and you draw a building, typically you have some sort of moniker on it. If you write a story, you give it a title. Uh, but in this case, with plants and animals, God does not do that. Why is that? Well, we're gonna find next time that it's because he intended that human beings do that, which is really a remarkable thing. God was going to tell Adam, you name the plants, you name the animals, and then, in a sense, he says, and I'll abide by whatever you name them. If you call it a hippo, I'll call it a hippo. And I think that's a, a really remarkable thing. And what we see there is that man's work in the garden was not just meant to be busy work or menial drudgery. It wasn't that like human beings were gonna be drone bees or drone ants and just constantly you know, lifting things and bringing them back like slaves. That's not what God's doing at all. God was going to include human beings at such a high level that he allowed us to name and categorize and administrate cooperatively with him in his creation. It's his symphony. And then he says, he, he goes like this. He says, hey, Adam and Eve, come over here. I have something for you. Why don't you name this stuff? Why don't we work on this together? We should also note here that our God is a God of great variety, all sorts of plants, all sorts of trees. In a similar way, he has a great variety in the type of fruit he wants to bear in your life. He doesn't intend for all of his children to be cookie cutter replications. He delights in a variety of gifts and a variety of fruit and a variety of activities. Not every church should be doing the exact same thing. Not every Christian should be doing the exact same thing and, 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 and worshiping in the exact same way. Of course, we're given boundaries and, and, and instructions and guidelines in the word of God, but within God's boundaries, he loves variety and he loves all sorts of different flavors and he loves all sorts of different fruit 
fruit being born in lives and in churches and in communities. Verse 14, and then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning the fourth day. Now this is significant. God created light before he created the sun or any of the other stars. For three days, the earth was lit up by a source that was not the stellar bodies that we recognize lighting the earth today. Why would this matter? Well, some folks have trouble with what they call the appearance of age and creation. And this is one of the founts from where theories like the day-age theory comes from. They look around at the world and they say, listen, we seem to know how fast light travels based upon scientific research. And we seem to be able to calculate distances from us to certain stars. Therefore, if that star was created and started shining, it would take a certain amount of time for that light to reach the earth. We can do the math equation. And therefore, the cosmos must be old enough to accommodate the millions of light years of distance between us and those stars. Because if God created the light from those stars as having already arrived at earth, the, the suggestion goes that in some way that is dishonest or deceptive or misinformation. And that is an argument you'll hear from time to time out there. And again, if this describes your perspective, it's not my intention to belittle it or get into an argument, but let's think through this. If God made the universe with the appearance of age, is that a cheat of some kind? Well, first of all, it's clear that there was light before stars. If you believe the Genesis account at all, you have to deal with the fact that God says there was light before there was a sun. So something was lighting up the world that wasn't sunlight, right? And then on this day, God created the sun and the sun started to do its thing. But let's set the stars on the shelf for the minute. Were Adam and Eve created as human embryos? No, nobody thinks that. Nobody thinks that. God had Adam in a test tube and that he grew him from, you know, from the cells and the zygote and all that stuff and, and grew him uh, from what we recognize as a baby. It's clear that they looked like full-grown adults at the moment they took their first breath. On day six of creation, we also see animals created, mammals included. If they were created as tiny babies just born, who would have nursed them to keep them alive? It's a problem, right? So we understand that animals were created with the appearance of age. Human beings most definitely were created with the appearance of age. Moving out of Genesis, do we ever see God performing acts that give what might be called the appearance of age? I think we do. Jesus, through whom all things were created, he's the creator, he once turned water into wine, right? In Cana of Galilee. In that instant, a process was completed that usually takes a longer period of time. Now, wine can be fermented in as little as a week and then prepared in a couple other weeks as far as bottling and whatever they do with wine. But other methods like barrel aging wine, that takes months or years. So that wine in Cana of Galilee, which was a few moments old from our perspective, had an appearance of age and an appearance of a longer natural process. And it was done in an instant. 
And we don't have any problem with that. Jesus didn't say to the servants, he didn't say, fill the water pots with water, come back to me in two weeks, and we're gonna have wine here. He said, fill them with water, dip in the ladle, we're done. And it was the best wine that you know, the party goers had ever tasted. We also think of the withering of the fig tree in Matthew 21 as kind of the reverse process. That miracle happened so fast that the disciples actually stop and say, how did that tree wither so quickly? It was an impossible miracle to them. There was such a sudden occurrence of something that normally takes a long time that it caused them to stop and marvel and to actually question about it. And so the appearance of age in our universe does not need to stumble us. God is all powerful. If we accept the idea which is revealed in the Bible that God exists, then he can do whatever he wants to do. You know, I was reading in my research about how a single-celled bacterium has so much information in its DNA, it would fill something like a million pages of an Encyclopedia Britannica, a million pages in a single-celled bacterium. That's the kind of power God has that he can instill in a little nothing speck of a molecule, just so much information that we couldn't even read it in a lifetime. This is the God that can bring people back from the dead. This is the God that can put himself into his creation. A God who's outside of time and space and yet he can take on a human form, a human body and a human nature and he's the God man, fully God and fully man. God can do anything. And so we don't need to be stumbled by what is sometimes called the appearance of age. Now here we see the sun and the moon were given to serve as signs for seasons and days and years. So many cultures at that time were worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars. And here it's revealed that they weren't gods, they were servants given as tools to mankind. And knowing how much the calendar would be involved in the spiritual life of Israel, we sort of start to get a sense of this living relationship with God that it wasn't going to be some compartmentalized or remote thing that, oh yeah, I gotta go over and and offer a sacrifice to God. No, instead it was going to be an all-encompassing whole way of life, that everything about the life of Adam and Eve, everything about the life of human beings was meant to be done in connection and communion and cooperation with God, that you would wake up from your rest to a new sunrise and you'd be watching the cycles of the moon in the evening and that would bring you thoughts not only of God's provision and his design and his intentions, but it also marked the regular times of worship and thanksgiving that were part of your life. That everything was all working together to help you commune with God and to know how much he had done for you and how much he loved you and all that he intends for you. We also see there how the text says that the lights would be in the sky. Now, of course, we know that the sun is not in the sky, right? We understand basic astronomy. What, what are we reading then? It's that the vantage point is not from some faraway galaxy out where looking down on the earth. No, the Lord was describing what was happening from our vantage point, that humans from standing on the dry land would look up and say, the sun is rising in the sky. We use those sorts of terms all the time. And so more and more, we're seeing God's heart to commune with us and just how personal and intimate he intended his relationship with human beings to be. We are the focal point of his attention and his intentions in this creation. He identifies with us. 
The sun in the sky is looking from our perspective upward. Verse 20, then God said, let the water swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came and then morning the fifth day. Verse 21 sends another volley at the theory of evolution. Birds and fish together, large animals right from the start, not beginning with tiny protoplasm or little organisms that eventually become different species. Now, the term used here for large sea creatures is also used for monsters and dragons. Hey, listen, dragons were a real thing, at least sea dragons. The Bible references them kind of a bunch of times. Leviathan was a real creature that people were freaked out about and you couldn't kill him. And the Bible says that he breathed fire. And you know, we, people say, well, that's written in the book of Job. That's a poetic book. But the book of Job is a poetic writing speaking about real things. And so it seems in ancient times, there really were fire-breathing animals. And while we say, well, that seems crazy, there's all kinds of animals that do weird chemical stuff, right? If you tried to explain an electric eel to someone who had never heard of an electric eel, they'd think you're crazy. And now we know, yeah, it's a real thing. And so dragons, pretty cool. To these creatures, God gives an assignment, multiply and fill your domain, the sea and the air. And not only was it done instantaneously, they then went on obeying the Lord in this command. Verse 24, and then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. While God would leave the job of naming all the animals to Adam, we do see a categorization of animals here. God makes a difference between domestic and wild animals, between large and small. Here is where dinosaurs would have been created along with all the other land animals. And of course, at this point in creation, there were no carnivores. Verse 30 will tell us that every living creature would be a vegetarian, which is going to happen again in the millennium, by the way. So now all things were ready for the Lord to introduce his special creation, human beings. He made the office ready for them to show up and start doing the job. This place, which would be their home and their workplace and their temple. It was a splendid domain full of life and potential and variety and adventure and wonder. This was no cubicle. This was meticulously designed so that men and women would not only survive, but absolutely thrive more and more in God's presence. The Lord's intention was to give us a place full of beauty and room and grandeur as we walked with him and, and did so in complete joy and complete satisfaction. That's what God wanted for us. That's still what he wants for us in the future, by the way. As Christians, this should build great anticipation in our hearts for the restoration of all things. There is going to be a redemption of this world and things will be put back to the way they, they once were, the way God originally intended before we showed up and ruined everything. And then somehow things are gonna get even better as we step out of the millennial kingdom and into eternity with our savior in the new Jerusalem, a place that he has been preparing not for six days, but for several thousand years from our vantage point. I wonder what he's capable of doing in that amount of time. 
Before we close, I'd encourage us to take what we've seen and bring some sort of application to ourselves and to do so this way. We notice that again and again, we read, God said, let there be, and it was done, right? There was no other option. The sun did not refuse to shine. The birds did not refuse to fly. The plants did not refuse to grow. When God spoke, when he commanded and directed, it was done. It was so. The cosmos had no other choice. But God does things differently with human beings. He still commands, but he gives us the choice of whether we will obey or not. Today, right now, God has commanded you in all sorts of different ways, ways that are communicated very clearly in the Bible. What if we think about some of the let the commands in the New Testament? We read a bunch of let there be light, let there be this, let there be that. Let's think about some let the commands that you and I have received from God who are also his creation in the New Testament. The Lord turns to us and says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. He says, let the children come to me. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. He says, let the thief steal no longer. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's just a few as we run out of time here. God still gives let the commands and he gives them to you and to me. They're on us right now. As much as he said, let the the light shine. So he says to us, let this happen and be true in your life. Are those commands any less imperative than let there be light? No. God created an entire cosmos so that he might have personal fellowship and communion and cooperation with you. He made everything so that you could have an abundant life in his presence, not conducted according to the way you think it should go, according to your design, but lived out in thankful subordination to his provision, his direction, and his design. Throughout these six days, we see God designing, separating, evaluating, revealing what is good and what should happen. Our part is to join in with obedience, trusting this great loving God to fashion us and fashion our lives for a good, good thing, unmatched by anything a fallen, dying world could try to offer us. Go God's way, obey him. When he says, let the to you and to me, let's do it.